Amen. Well, again, good morning and welcome to Hope Lower Town. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here. And we started this church uh, about six years ago, just over six ago, years ago. And uh, we're glad to be here uh, in this neighborhood, in this community, in this town, in this space. And um, yeah, this is uh, Romans. And this is week 25 of Romans. And so if you're, again, new to Hope, uh, obviously we've, we've been in this book for a while. We kind of took the summer off from, from Romans and now we're we're jumping back into it. So again, week 25. Um, and so uh, let me just, uh, I'm not going to try to recap everything. I, I just, you know, I can't do that every week. But um, we, we looked at the first three chapters in, in the spring and looked at how the Apostle Paul said, hey, here's the gospel. You are saved alone uh, by faith alone by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's his theme. Doesn't matter if you're, you're, you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, any other ethnicity. He said, we all, we all need Jesus and we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, but, but, but God himself is gonna become both just, that he demands justice, but then he becomes the justifier in Romans. We see this. And so, um, and so then this fall, we've kind of shifted then, looking at chapters four through eight, then saying, how do we then live, right? Knowing this is who Christ is, the freedom that we have in this gospel that he saved us, how does this impact us? Uh, impact us? And, and how do we do this? Well, as I was looking at the text for this morning, I got really excited uh, because, as you know, I'm a, I'm a theology guy. Uh, I teach systematic theology uh, every week, and, and I, I love being able to, um, I don't know, to, 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 to use logic and reason and really dig into those difficult questions. Because there are a lot of difficult questions. Anytime you encounter uh, something in the Bible, you just go, I, that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would God do it that way? I can't, I, I'm struggling with this. I love to be able to dig in. Not that there's always a, a perfect little answer for everything. Uh, and yet, uh, usually there's something that can at least kind of scratch the itch that I have in my brain. And as I was looking at this passage, it just in my mind, it was like, oh man, the, the problem of evil, right? How, how did sin enter this world? And can we, right? And so I was like, oh, this is great. I've never, I don't think I've preached on this before. I teach on it. I, you know, I lecture on this all the time, but I've never had a chance to preach on it. And then I went back, uh, went onto our website, looked at, you know, clicked on my name and it said, you know, sermons from Brian and searched um, problem of evil. And wouldn't you know it, uh, I have a sermon entitled The Problem of Evil. Uh, and we did this when we were in the middle of Job. And if you remember Job, you probably don't, uh, because this was in a little something called the pandemic. And, uh, and so in September, just exactly three years ago, I preached from my rock band microphone uh, in my living room. Remember that little PTSD going on? Uh, and literally that was a rock band mic on, a, on the drum kit stand that I've got that thing jammed into, but it worked great because you couldn't buy a USB mic uh, during that time. And so that worked. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> the Lord provides in mysterious ways. <laughs> And, uh, and that's what we did. And so there was probably five of you uh, that tuned in that Sunday. It just was that kind of a, just a, weird, just a weird time, right? Uh, but that was, that was it. It was the problem of evil. And so I am not going to spend time looking at that. If you want to go back and you, you're more than welcome to, to go and listen to that sermon. Um, and, but one of the slides, let me just recap kind of where, uh, where I went with this. And, and kind of the big aha moment, if you will, when it comes to the problem of, of evil uh, is that what prompted Adam and Eve to choose evil, to choose to sin, right? And there's kind of three options that we're, we're left with, and this will tie into the passage this morning, and that's why I even bring it up and want to just kind of put this on our minds, because I think some of you might have gone, well, what about this whole thing? And that's a really good question. 
Um, so just, again, want to go, go back. And again, there's not really good answers here, um, just almost more questions. But there are three options when it comes to Adam and Eve. One is they were evil. God created them evil, right? In the sense that they were created with the inclination to choose sin. And if that's the case, well, then God then is evil, right? So we can't rule, if God created them evil, created them with um, a, a leaning to be evil, well, then how could humanity be responsible for their evil actions if that's how we were created? Doesn't, doesn't work that way. The other option then is that they were created good with the inclination to be good and to do good. And the problem with that is, yeah, but they chose sin. So that just doesn't work. How, would, how could somebody who is inclined to do the right thing and to be good choose evil, which then leaves us with the third thing, which is neutral or neutrality. But again, the problem with being neutral is that if I'm in neutral, I can't then make a decision to be good or be bad. I could be coerced, I could be manipulated, but then how could I be held responsible if let's say a serpent comes along and says, oh, did God really say Right? Well, then, then I was manipulated in a way, and then how could I then be held responsible if I was neutral? Right? If you put your car in neutral, it doesn't matter how hard you rev it, it's not going anywhere. It doesn't matter how hard you hit the brake, it's not stopping any more than what it stopped, unless it's rolling down a hill, all analogies break down. Okay? Neutrality, if I'm in neutral, so, so that doesn't work. And so for thousands of years, the position of the church has been that Adam and Eve were created good with an inclination to do good, but yet in some way, mysterious way, they still chose evil and sin. But sin does not enter the universe in that moment. Satan had already fallen. Who's the serpent? Why? The serpent is lying to Eve. So sin was already in the world before Adam and Eve were in the world. So how does that all work? That's a whole nother conversation. So we're not gonna get into all that, but I just wanna put that in front of you when it comes to the problem of evil. Uh, December 16th, 1776, uh, was the Boston Tea Party. Uh, I remember this, all of you uh, early American political thought uh, people out there. Any, uh, any, any of you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, no. Did we just become best friends? Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it was a class I had to take in, in college and... Um, I, re I remember this, okay? This was uh, the, if you remember, uh, some of you might have maybe in elementary, you heard of the Sons of Liberty uh, that they dressed as Native Americans. And, and I don't know why, there's not really a good explanation for that. I don't know if they're like, hey, there's gonna be a lot of witnesses and maybe we can, we can I don't know, ship the blame. No one will know it was us, but I don't think it, that was the case. I think they wanted to be known. Uh, and this is kind of what sparked uh, the revolution and the American revolution. So these Sons of Liberty were really upset with the British East India Company uh, because they were getting tea from China, shipping it across, and they didn't have to pay taxes on it, but they forced the American colonies to pay taxes on it. And so they got really upset. There was something called the Townshed Acts. Does that ring a bell? Anybody? The Townshed Acts? Ooh, that's exciting. Uh, all these taxes that the colonies had to pay simply because they were colonies, not part of actual um, uh, Britain. And so this is where the phrase, a uh, very popular phrase, comes from this uh, no taxation without representation. And it turns into this big thing, right? And if you remember the movie Patriot with Mel Gibson, why should I trade one tyrant 10,000 or 1,000 miles away for 10 or 1,000 tyrants one mile away, right? It's kind of this, this whole thing, right? I said that right, I think, right? Why, and, and that's what it's happening here, that, that you've got, there's, I'm not being represented well. And, and so there's this, I, I want better representation. And so we, that, that's why in the United States we have parliament, we have parliament, 
<laughs> we have the House and we have the Senate, right? We have somebody, you have a president who is voted in to hopefully in that way represent the majority of the people. And that's the whole idea. And it kind of stems from this, no taxation without representation. And that's really what we're going to be looking at today, looking at in Romans chapter 5, just three verses, 12 through 14, the true and better Adam. Because we're going to see Adam as this representative of humanity. And is that fair, right? That's kind of the, the, the big question, if you will, is can we be declared guilty by a representative, right? If, if, can we all, humanity, regardless of male, female, Jew, Gentile, it's got nothing to do with anything, declared guilty, declared sinful because of the, re, the actions of one man, right? That's really what this text is gonna kind of start to uh, answer the Apostle Paul is going to at least. So if you wouldn't mind, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read Romans chapter 5, 12 through 14? Uh, I'll read this aloud and you can just follow along. Uh, again, just three verses here this morning. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was, the, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. Thank you. You may be seated. Douglas Moo uh, in his commentary on Romans says this, in a passage that rivals 321 through 26, I'm not gonna go back and read it, but this is, we are declared guilty. Uh, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus, God the Father, is both just and the justifier. So it rivals that. In a passage that rivals 321 through 26 for theological importance, Paul paints with broad brushstrokes a bird's eye picture of the history of redemption. His canvas is human history and the scope is universal. We hear nothing in this paragraph of Jew and Gentile. Both are subsumed, they're absorbed, they're included under the larger category of human being. And this includes everybody. One man represents everybody from sin to sinners. So let's look at this text. Again, we do this every time in Romans so far, probably every time I've preached in my entire life. Anytime you get to the word therefore, you just gotta pause just for a second. And you gotta ask, right, that question. What is it there for? Why, why are we, why is this train of thought going here? And his thought is wild in this passage, I'm at, right? Not to get into the, the language and everything, but in, in our English translations, at the end of verse 12, there's just that dash. And every commentary is like, that dash signifies in English, we have no idea what's going on. It just, the, the, the thought, the train of thought just keeps shifting. He just keeps going from one thing to another thing to another thing. I have no idea what that's like. Uh, I always catch my rabbits, so I don't know what Paul is going on. But in that sense, so it's just, it's just kind of a wild thing. But he says, therefore, what's going on? Right, he, we just got done with the first 11 verses of justification. You have been declared innocent, innocent from sin, right? I've been justified. I now have peace with God. There's no longer any more wrath, deserved wrath on me because of my sin. That's what the first four chapters are going to be talking about. I have access to this grace, this pure 
grace, undeserved grace of God in his throne room that he lavishes upon me. Again, not because of anything we've done, and it's all through Jesus. Because of knowing all that and, and, and my justification, my declared innocence, then we get to this text. And so kind of the big overall theme of this paragraph, and as we're going to see next week, there's kind of this comparison that's going on, just as so also. We're going to see a comparison, and I'm not going to, I'll point out some of them, but it won't be maybe explicit, but it's all there, that you have death and sin, you have death and life, you have sin to sinners, you have Adam to Jesus. It's all there. And so just four points in this text this morning, and the first one is going to be sinners through Adam. It says this, therefore, just that sin came into the world through one man, and if you are familiar with the Bible, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, you probably know the stories of what happened in the Garden of Eden with Eve, right? Eve was the one that, that first ate the fruit. So let's go back. I just want to read this in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 6. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, uh, let me just pause real quick here. Again, this is that over, this is the 30,000 view uh, picture of, of humanity and, the, and redemption, the story of redemption. The apostle Paul is going all the way back to the beginning and then he's gonna get to Jesus. So he says, did God actually say, and listen, I've said this a million times, the devil loves to say that. He loves to plant the seed in our brains of, of doubting the words of God. Did God really say, Jesus if you are the son of God, even though God just said, this is my son in whom I am pleased. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's that little seed of deceit. And the woman said to the serpent, no, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, Eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will have autonomy, Eve. You will get to choose what is right and wrong for yourself. Not some God, not some deity. You will be like God and you get to choose for yourself. You can have autonomy. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. But here is the key phrase. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I think a lot of times we think, oh man, yeah, it was, this was all Eve. No, 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 Adam's right there. He's with her. He's hearing the conversation. He obviously never interjects. And he says, oh, oh he, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll eat some of that. I'll eat some of that too. And he eats it. So, so why is the focus here, even though it is in the passage in Genesis on Eve, why is the passage that Paul is writing in Romans chapter 5 not say through one woman's sin? And it could be maybe an oversimplification of looking at Adam, Ad Adam in Hebrew, simply means man, mankind, right? And so this is, he's a representative head of all mankind, which we'll, we'll see more in this text. I'm not just, I don't want to just fly over that, but we're going to come back to that in a little bit. It then says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, again, this individual sin of Adam leads to the world 
everyone sinning becomes corporate, which leads to this idea, this theological term of phrase that's called original sin. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, which we could. But when we look at the original sin, this does not mean what was the original sin. This is a theological term. It's been used for thousands of years. It doesn't mean what was the sin that Adam and Eve committed. Was it pride? Was it arrogance? Was it a desire to be autonomous? Was it just simply disobedience and not obeying the law that God had given them to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Was that the sin? That's not what original sin means. So get that out of your mind. The original sin doesn't mean what was the original sin. I know it's kind of confusing. What original sin is really getting at is what is the result of that first sin? What is the result of that? And the result of that first sin is that our nature is fallen. In theological, or at least in reform circles, we like to use the phrase totally depraved, right? That, that there is every ounce and nook and cranny of my heart is depraved in some way, shape, or form. It's not utterly depraved. It doesn't mean I'm as sinful as I could possibly be at all times. I am totally depraved. That regardless of what I'm doing, there's something in me that is just tainted. It's stained by sin. That is the idea of original sin. Jesus talks about this. He talks about how a bad tree, a broken tree is going to bring forth bad and broken fruit. That's what happens. And so we kind of have this phrase that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That, that's, we, we are inclined to sin now. We sin because we're sinners and we all have this disposition to sin. Pedro uh, Pascal uh, once said this. Just kidding, not Pedro, it's Blaise. Blaise Pascal um, said this. I'm sure Pedro's a theologian. He's, he's a man of many talents. Blaze, though, says this. Original sin is foolishness to men. Blaze is just a theologian, long dead. Original sin is foolishness to men, but it is admitted to be such. You must not then reproach me for the want of reason in this doctrine, since I admit to be without reason. But the foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men, for without this... What can we say that man is? The whole state depends on, his, on this uh, imperceptible point. But how should it be perceived by his reason, since it is a thing against reason, and since reason, far from finding it out by her own ways, adverse to, uh, adverse to it when it is persuaded by her. What he's saying here is saying, this, we struggle with this, and yet we can observe humanity and go, yeah, we are really messed up. Like, we, we are twisted and dark and regardless of it, someone's going to find some way to, to twist it. Just the other day, Henry, just, I think it had been yesterday, my, my son was asking me, uh, I don't remember what it was, maybe we were talking about um, energy uh, and fuel consumption and that kind of thing. And, and I was talking about, you know, they had made, you know, recently they, someone did the laser thing and more energy came out than what they put in. And I was like, yeah, and they're working on it. They're going to try to build these big, you know, engineers and scientists are working on this to make that a bigger scale. And and we could maybe have free energy for the world. It would change the entire world. And I said, well, that is until some bad guy gets a hold of it, right? And starts charging people for free energy or takes over the world with it, right? Because that's just, that's how human beings are inclined. We're bent to be evil and we see it all around us. The problem with this idea though is again, this kind of question that I'm assuming some of you, if not all of you have been thinking, if I am born 
with a sin nature, how can God hold me accountable for my sins? Right again, there's a tension here. How is it that one man's individual sin can affect all corporately? There are two, um, at least within conservative biblical orthodoxy circles, uh, options for this. One would be this idea that's called realism. And I know this feels like a systematic theology class, and I promise we're going to get to Jesus here in just a minute. But I think this is helpful just to understand uh, the, the, this passage. And, and, and really, Paul, that, that's why Romans is just so rich and deep uh, in this theology. Anyways, one of them is called realism. Uh, this means that we are or were somehow present with Adam when he chose to sin, that we were uh, with him, whether in spirit or even physically, in the sense that the Bible does this multiple times with Abraham uh, and Levi. There's this crazy guy called Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 15, nope, uh, 14, that we're introduced to. And he uh, is said that he gives a tithe to Abraham, or Abraham gives a tithe to this guy Melchizedek. And so therefore the priests, the Levites also tithe because they were in the loins of Abraham. Okay, that's so is that what's going on, right? That, that, that this sin nature is passed on physically by procreation. That's one option. I don't think that's, that doesn't necessarily answer all the, at least it answers, it doesn't itch as much of the scratch, okay? Than, than this idea of federalism, which I think I've, I've uh, implied or said of this representative, right? And that's exactly what it is, that he represents us, all humanity, but he does it truly and fairly in the most true and the most fair way, even though we might go, ah, nope, I wouldn't have done that. I never would have done that. Well, R.C. Sproul says this. There's only one time in all of human history when we have been perfectly accurately represented and we did not choose our own representative. God chose our representative for us. Adam was the perfect choice for you and for me. God holds me accountable for what Adam did because Adam did, in fact, truly, perfectly, and infallibly represent me. He was my candidate. I did not choose him, God did. But again, if we suppose that when God chose Adam to represent us, that his choice was malicious or foolish, fallible or inaccurate, what are we saying about God? When we make those kinds of complaints and register those kinds of protests, we are proving how accurate the choice was. Because when we assail the integrity of God in making the selection for us, we are revealing our own fallenness. All right, and again, we might still say, well, yeah, but that doesn't, it still just doesn't seem fair. And I think we could still, you know, in some way, shape, or form, still have that kind of idea of, man, I... I don't know, I just wish we, we, I would have had more say in our fallen condition. I wish I, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have had the chance to do that. Or, or this doesn't seem fair that Adam is representing all of humanity. The problem is if we go that route, if we say, oh, no, 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 there's no, it's not fair that one person uh, is responsible for the human condition, then if that's true in a fallen sense, how can we then say it's true in our salvation sense? How is it that one man's condition or his, his life, his work, his choices can affect that of all of humanity, right? Jesus is also a representative and a representative claim for salvation. It's only by representation that we are saved. 
by imputation. That is God giving us his righteousness. We don't have a say in any of that. And if it's possible to save someone by another person's actions, then it's for sure also then possible to punish one based on another man's sin and work. Again, Douglas Moo, though, kind of on the same thought, says this, on the view that we are examining, these statements must be expanded to mean, and he's going to kind of put his own words in this passage, in this verse. He says, one man's trespass resulted in the corruption of human nature, which caused all people to sin, and so brought condemnation on all men. He says, while it is possible that Paul would want us to assume these additions, he has given us little basis for doing so. And so while R.C. Sproul is very uh, emphatic on this idea and this uh, thing of, of uh, federalism with the apostle, or excuse me, with Adam, uh, here Douglas Moo is saying, this is, I think it's implied, it's, just, it's not all there. This is still difficult to try to make these jumps and it doesn't answer all the questions. Moving along here in the text though, be death through sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Again, sin to now all sin and death of one man, now death to all men. You can see these comparisons. So what is this death? Is it a physical death or it is a spiritual death? When we go back to the Garden of Eden, when God tells Adam and Eve, do not eat this tree or you will surely die. I think he meant, physical and spiritual death. And I think it's only grace that God allows humanity to not be physically killed, but they are spiritually dead in those moments. That they need a redeemer. They need someone to breathe new spiritual life into them. And so you can go back and forth, but I do think that the apostle Paul has in mind here mainly spiritual death because in the next couple of verses, we'll get there next week, so I don't wanna to get too far ahead. In Romans 5.21, to answer this, is it physical or a spiritual death? He says, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think it's both and. I think it's physical and spiritual, this idea of eternal life, not just eternal life for my physical glorified body, but spiritually for my soul. So then how can one sin without the law? The Apostle Paul is gonna briefly get into this. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Sin, by definition, if, if you were to open up a theological dictionary, a theological Bible, it would say, sin is when we break the laws of God. That God says something and we go contrary to it. Okay, well, he's saying the law of Moses doesn't come into play for another two, 3,000 years. So how, how could people die in that time period if the law wasn't there? He says, but for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Yet sin is not counted here where there is no law. So if there was death from Adam to Moses before the law, logically there had to be sin from Adam to Moses. There had to be a breaking of God's law, even though the written law wasn't there yet. And it means there had to be a law written on their hearts, which we've already talked about. That there was something going on in human nature that held them accountable, which the Apostle Paul, it's his argument in Romans 1 through 3, makes us all guilty. That we're all sinners. No one is good. Not one is righteous. 
we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And so therefore, according to the Apostle Paul, we are without excuse. And that is why sin ruled and reigned. And that is why death ruled and reigned, even in that period before the law of Moses came about. That when uh, Adam sinned, he knew he was wrong, but he was given a law. But when his son, when Cain kills Abel, did Cain not know murder was bad? Of course he did. There's a law on their hearts that every human being is held accountable to. And so here we go. At the end of this, just these three verses here, we see that Jesus is the greater Adam, the second Adam, as some will refer to Jesus as. And so in Romans, looking at verse 14, it says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam. I just alluded to that. Who was Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come? Now this is where things get interesting. That Jesus is the greater Adam. And if and it, just, a, just a brief comparison between the two. It just screams we need Jesus because if Adam is our representative, fair and just and good representative, and he chose to sin and therefore chose to suffer, and therefore we would have done the same exact thing, that all of humanity now is depraved. All of humanity has this original sin and inclination to choose evil. That's Adam, but now Jesus shows up on the scene and does what Adam should have done for us we see that Adam, when he first sins, his first inclination is to hide from God, to flee, to go hide in the garden. Whereas Jesus flees to the garden to approach God the Father in prayer over and over again. We see that Adam is a sinner. Adam chooses to sin, whereas Jesus is the sinless one. Adam represents all of humanity and finds us, therefore, all guilty. Whereas Jesus represents all humanity and all who believe find forgiveness in him. And Adam, we see that he is unable to make a sacrifice for his sins, that he is unable to atone for his sins. As a matter of fact, God shows up at the end of chapter three and he, he, he has a sacrifice, a sacrificial animal, and he clothes them in the death of an animal. That blood is shed, and then Jesus, obviously on the opposite side of that, is the sacrifice for our sins. Adam can't make a sacrifice for his, son, his sins. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. It is now his blood that atones, not the blood of a lamb or sacrifice. Adam is kicked out of the Garden of Eden, never to return lest he find the tree of life Jesus, however, is going to make all things new. He's going to return to this world that someday, at some point, as if nothing bad ever happened, and he will rule and reign. And finally, just simply, Adam disobeyed the Father, and Jesus, simply put, obeyed the Father. I want to end with just this simple quote here from Douglas Moo. He says this, the main connection is with the teaching of assurance of final salvation in the immediately preceding paragraph, which we looked at last week. The passage shows why those who have been justified and reconciled can be so certain 
that they will be saved from the wrath and share in the glory of God. It is because Christ's act of obedience ensures eternal life for all those who are in Christ. This is what we call, at least growing up, I don't know if it was a thing in all Christian circles, but we called it the assurance of salvation. Do I have assurance of my salvation? And we've been preaching this. And I know Paul, especially a couple of weeks ago, our elder, uh, preached on this, that it's not, it's not the amount of faith I have looking at Abraham. It's not that Abraham was just this bastion of faith, that he was just so, just, oh, he's just so great. He was so good. He really struggled, but his object of his faith never wavered. And that was the promises of God. It was Yahweh. And now it is also same true for us, the promises of God in Christ that I put my faith in him and I might waver, I might struggle, I might, man, this is really hard for me, but my object of my faith stays the same. And that, the uh, the Hebrew, author of Hebrews says, that is the assurance of things hoped for. I can see it, I can feel it, I can taste it. This is my assurance, my faith in Christ. And I can know. The apostle John says, these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't have to guess Am I okay? I am okay in Jesus because of what Jesus has already done on my behalf as my representative for my salvation because I can't do it. We talk about assurance of salvation. Um, Those of you at at, at Hope Lower Town, you know every once in a while I kind of get into this voice. I get into this preacher voice. uh, And the reason for that is because uh, growing up, there was a a gentleman, um, his name was Tom Farrell. Uh, and he was, he was an evangelist, all right? Uh, nice guy, uh, nice guy. Um, and, uh, but we used to call him double barrel feral uh, because he, he, would, he was kind of the stereotypical uh, fundamentalist preacher and he would just get up and scream and shout and fire and brimstone. And, and if you don't believe in Jesus, you're, you're gonna go to hell. Uh, and, and most likely none of you believe in Jesus. So let's, let's do it tonight, all of us, right? Let's, let's get saved because I don't want you to go to hell. It's just kind of that, that way, a lot of fear. And I remember uh, I worked at this camp called the Wilds in North Carolina, and I was a dishwasher. And um, after we would get done doing the dishes, late at night, we'd go down to the chapel services. uh, And uh, there was always uh, a a big invitational call, right? So the preacher would say, hey, if you made a decision, come forward, you know, fill out this thing and and meet with a counselor and whatever. And so I would meet with, with these kids afterwards, even though I was a kid myself, I think it was 17, 18, and and, but these younger kids would come forward and I would meet with them and talk with them. And, and one of them, though, one sermon, I remember it was on a Monday night. Uh, and there was probably 900 kids that would go to this camp on a weekly basis. And so a lot of dishes, <laughs> let me tell you. And, 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 and I remember, though, he, the first on a Monday night preached a sermon on the assurance of salvation. How do you know you're saved? I want you to believe in Jesus. Just this powerful message on the assurance, assurance of salvation. And like 400 kids came forward and they filled out these cards. I now have assurance in Jesus. I know that he is my savior. The next night he gives a fire and brimstone hell sermon and 800 of the 900 kids come forward to get saved. Well, hang on a second. Right, let's do some math here, right? That means at least 300 of them lied yesterday. Okay, Why? This is the assurance that there are going to be dark times. There's going to be suffering as we even looked at last week, but that suffering, even in the midst of my darkness, of my trials, my suffering, I look to Jesus who is the beginner and the ender of my faith that I can have joy even in the midst of my suffering the same way Christ did. He is my assurance. How do I know that I have eternal life 
Jesus, only Jesus. And that's what the apostle Paul is saying. We are all fallen, everybody, based on this idea of original sin in Adam, but yet we are all saved. Everyone is saved who puts their faith in Christ alone. And so just in simple gospel application, Jesus ensures eternal life by his obedience, not yours. Adam ensures our, our damnation by his disobedience, which is also ours, but Jesus ensures eternal life by his obedience, not yours. Every week we have communion. We have the elements set up here. These elements just simply are to remind us, remember what Jesus did. And we, I love being able to do this every week that we get to go up here. We get to take that little wafer and, and break that. At least I do like to break it. That's what Jesus did he, with his disciples. He broke the bread and he says, you take and you eat this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then he does and he passes the cup around. And he says, this is my blood, which was shed for you. This is a new covenant in my blood, not the sacrifice of some animal, me. And we get to take these elements every week and remember the finished work of Christ that Jesus ensures eternal life by his obedience, not yours. Worship team's gonna come up. They're gonna play two more songs. Um, and so as you feel uh, fit, as you'd like to, uh, grab these elements. And if, all I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. If, if you love Jesus, you're like, yeah, I, I really waver in my faith. I struggle with my faith sometimes. I got a lot of questions that, uh, that I'm struggling with, but man, Jesus, yeah, I, he has to be the answer. It, because if I can save myself, well, then, then what's the point? Jesus has to be the answer. If that's you, I would love for you to partake of these elements, this meal of remembrance with us this morning. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church. Just love King Jesus. And I would love to have you uh, have these elements with us. Um, let me pray and the worship team will come up as we um, have communion together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, just these, these three verses that again, I think just, you could just read over them, you gloss over them, but just seeing the theological richness in these verses of looking at just the depravity of humanity, that we are, are sinners, all of us, that all of us have fallen short. None of us are good. None of us could ever choose to do good without you. So God, would you be the object of our faith? That when we are in dark places, when we are struggling, would we keep our eyes on you and remember that I'm okay in Jesus? Would that be our anthem as we go forward this week? As we're struggling with our lives, whether that's some kind of uh, oppression or difficult situation I'm in, or struggling just with sin and fighting sin, to just be reminded this week, I'm okay in Jesus. He is my representative, not me. God, we love you. And pray now as we take these elements that we remember that finished work of Christ, that it's done. We can't add anything to it and we can't take anything away. We love you. And it's the name of your son, of Jesus, that we pray. Amen.